G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I had an amazing time having a chat and getting to know Brianna Jansen, or Bree the OT as you may know her on Instagram. Uh, Bree is a meditation teacher, which was one of the big reasons why I wanted to have a chat with her and explore meditation and mindfulness within the profession of OT, which we definitely did. Uh, and then we moved into exploring her work, her clinical work, within the prison system here in Australia. She introduced me to an amazing model, which, pro tip, we're more than likely going to do a whole other episode just on that because it is absolutely fantastic. But please enjoy Breathe the OT, Brianna Jansen. So, are you still nervous? Um, I've, if I'm being completely honest, yeah, I've just listened to pump up songs on Spotify and danced around my house a bit. Now I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Whatever works, you know. Is that your usual uh, coping mechanism? I guess. Um, look, it never hurts. That's it never true. hurts. I like that. Attitude. So, I like that. <laughs> Why yeah, the imposter like, syndrome, though? This is your jam. What was oh, it? honestly, today I was like, so full disclosure, and I was like, I'll front end it. So in terms of like since I've finished uni, yep. I've been employed as an OT, but it's always been in like interdisciplinary roles. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's all right. So I, pardon? That's all right. Yeah, so I think sometimes in terms of that, I was like, but in terms of like specific OT stuff, I don't know. And then, yeah, then I listened to a pump-up song and now I'm feeling better. And now you're good. <laughs> but there, I mean, I, I like I worked in those positions for years as well. Why is this so quiet? Yeah. And, um, you know, you bring your, your OT-ness to those positions as well. It's, yeah, you know, it is Yeah, it I was is. having um, a chat to one of the girls I work with and so I was telling her about it and she was like, yeah, like technically we all do the same stuff but we all do it in very different ways and yep. which is true. So yep. then I felt better. At it from different places and we come at it from that OT point of view and the nurses, yeah, definitely. Uh, they do whatever nurses do and everyone else has their thing as well. <laughs> so how long ago did you yeah. finish OT or did you graduate, I mean? Um, three years ago. So since then, I've had two jobs. So mm -hmm. my first one was in child protection. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. So that was straight out the bat. I feel like after you do that, you feel like you can, you can at least anything. attempt to take on anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And then now I work in a correctional centre. Okay. So have you always liked that forensic stuff? I think I fell into it. Um yeah, I don't really know how that happened. I moved back to the country and jobs were a bit more limited and few and far between. So I did the classic just finished uni, apply for everything and hope for the best. You'll spray, um, spray and pray. Yeah. And then I don't know. It's interesting employment, but I love it. And, yeah, it keeps me very entertained and 
so fulfilled you, and so all that your, great stuff. Your job now is it transitioning out of correctional facilities or is it working with people in correctional facilities? In corrections. Yeah. What sort of stuff do you have to do with or do you get to do with, with people in there? Yeah. So um, I'm not only OT in my team. The rest of my team is psychologists and social workers. And so we do their assessments and I guess what they call their treatment programs, so like violence programs, substance use programs, that sort of stuff. So it's definitely interesting mm. but it's also I think as an OT you tend to take a bit more of a different approach a lot of the time. Um, so that is really, really good. How do you go with the, like engagement in those like group programs and stuff? Because I mean on one hand people be like, oh, it's a captive audience, they can't go anywhere. But on the other hand it's like, yeah, they can't go anywhere. So why like there's no motivation to do anything? Like how do you go balancing that out? Yeah, so oh, I think God. it was one of my biggest surprises when I started there, and this is going to sound ridiculous to anyone who doesn't work in a prison, but going from child protection or, like, community where you're trying to organise meetings with people and they just don't turn up, I remember starting working in a prison and being like, this is going to be amazing because if I book them in, they have to come. they got nowhere else to go. But they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they don't always come. Um in terms of the clinical service, they call it, or the therapeutic service that I work as a part of, everything's voluntary. Mm. So in terms of engagement, I would say 80% of the guys who sign on to work with us tend to try and engage pretty well. The other 20% are extrinsically motivated and just want parole. Um, yeah. So sometimes I can imagine get... that being a pretty big motivation when you're in prison. <laughs> I want to Absolutely. get out of prison. That's... Yeah. That's a pretty big motivator, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, certainly you sort of get various levels of people. So you get some that are very much, I actually want to change enough is enough. Mm. I want to get my life back. Um, and then you get some who are like, I already know that I'm going to continue doing what I've always done. Just, Just give me my certificate and let me move the on. Pattern. Pardon? Living the pattern. Yes, absolutely. And does your, does, well, cause you, are you in Victoria? Yes. Yeah. Does the forensic system down there or like your team, does that fit within mental health or is it a separate thing down there? So it's very prison dependent. In terms of ours, it sits slightly separate. So we, um, I guess we definitely work with people with uh, mental health concerns. So it is quite disproportionate compared to the general community, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of if anyone's presenting with acute mental health, there tends to be more like the forensic hospitals for that or if it's manageable, um, but certainly there is symptomology or whatever it might be, then it tends to sit with the psych nurses more so than us. Because mm, I just know like the, the prison... I can't remember what their official name is, but the prison teams essentially up here in Queensland or where I am in Townsville anyway sit within sort of the mental health from an organisational point of view, sit within mental health. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think I don't think that means that they, you know, don't handle other health issues, but as a team from an organisational point of view, they tend to sit within mental health, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those... Um, tricky ones where technically we do have very clear roles of what we do but then 
naturally sometimes we do support the psych nurses. So if someone gets put on like suicide or self-harm like watch, then we provide secondary consults to them. Um, okay. So rather than that responsibility line with one person, you sort of tend to get a bit more of a broader perspective and have a bit more of a team that makes yeah. those decisions. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way of doing it. Nice. Awesome. All right. I was just curious. <laughs> I like asking questions. That's what I do. Um, how did you get into like mindfulness, medica- meditation, medication, meditation and all that sort of meditation. stuff? Meditation. Yeah. So the way that I found my way into it, I guess we did um, some of it in uni. So we sort of started to get exposed to it. I'd done it on and off, but if I'm being completely honest, it was one of those things that I would go through phases where I'd do it every day and then I would miss it for a day and then miss it for a week and then miss it for a couple of months and then I would decide that I needed to do it again. I'm very familiar And then I would get back into habit. (laughs) Yeah, and just sort of fall in and out of routine with it. Yep. Um, And then... When I was at uni, I did a community mental health placement and they were really big on, I guess, community-based programs. So some of those things would be mindfulness or meditation type groups where people could come on a voluntary basis. Um, And there was really good engagement. Like there was actually quite a number of regular people that would attend because that placement was eight weeks. So you would sort of got to see who would regularly attend. Yeah, yeah. I got back into it at that point and then within um, my work that I do now, we actually do it a lot in our programs as well because there's been a lot of research that suggests, you know, that it can decrease impulsivity, which is obviously a massive thing that we're trying to work with. Yep. Um, Increase things like consequential thinking as well as that whole inner peace and purpose and, um, managing mental health symptomology. So all of that as a contributing factor, we do definitely use it within programs. Um, and then I saw an opportunity available online for to be a meditation teacher on an app. And I thought, oh, I'll just give that a go. I mean, nothing will probably eventuate, which is what I tend to do with things and then they do and I'm more <laughs> surprised than anyone. You gotta give yourself more credit. <laughs> I'm literally that person that when something happens, I'm like imposter syndrome, as you know. Yeah. Oh, so how do you like? Because there's a a oh, I say a billion, but probably not that many. But there are a lot of different kinds of meditation and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And it's something that I've seen probably in the last. I'm going to say predominantly probably in the last five years that it's really starting to make a push into a lot of different clinical areas, um, yeah. especially even just basic mindfulness. Obviously, you being a relatively new clinician, it, it's probably always been there for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but how did you how do you how do you learn to be a, a teacher? Like how and what sort of do you just train in like one kind of meditation? Like how does that sort of process play out or how did it play out for you? Yeah. Um, I guess tying into the first thing that you said, I think it definitely is gaining traction sort of um, since I've been practising. 
I, as you said, it's sort of always been around, but I've been around. Um, but I think it is also becoming more widely accepted. I mm. think people used to have the misconception that it was like crush your legs, hum, you know, sit under a tree or whatever it might be. Shady and it was always this weird thing that people knew of, but like you can't do that sort of thing. Um, where now I think it is becoming so much more widely accepted, even if it is more on that mindfulness type level. Mm. So in terms of me, if I'm talking about complete training, um, I know that there certainly is um, like formalised trainings that you can do to be it. I think it was something more so that I probably fell into if I'm talking about formal training specifically. Honestly, I haven't if I'm being completely um, real. I think it's probably just something more that I've practised a lot and then have used strategies that I've found that have worked and been really, really receptive to feedback because it is something that we do very often in my current job. You, um, had you practiced any of it? Like you said, you, that there was some within your course. Had you heard of it, done anything about it or used it prior to that? Or was that sort of your very first sort of intro into meditation and mindfulness? No, definitely. I used it a lot during um, uni. I would say that's probably when I started to come into it more so. So I increased my knowledge on actually facilitating it there was a long period there where I thought my voice was a bit too high pitched and a bit too perky to be trying to calm people um so I was very resistant to giving it a go you're just full of imposter syndrome (laughs) everything I can't do that and then you do it um so yeah it was a little bit resistant to giving it a go purely because I'm like I don't have the voice for it like you need to you need to know your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, so I hadn't, but I definitely, you know, listened to apps myself or, you know, the old YouTube, <laughs> anything really, um, particularly around, I guess, stresses to do with uni. So an assignment's for due mm. and just that general juggling of being a student and trying to fit everything in. Um, yeah, so I'd sort of started practising it more for that and then, as I said, floated in and out of how often I was doing them. I think just going back to what you were saying before about it sort of becoming more accepted, obviously I'm slightly older than you. I say slightly just for my own self-esteem. And I can vouch for the fact that, say, maybe 10 years ago, if you were to look at doing meditation or whatever in in practice or even just in general, you would, you know, what's this weird hippie-looking dude gonna do now like it was it very much had a like you know who does meditation monks sitting in a in a you know convent on the hill or something like it wasn't seen as a clinical thing it wasn't seen as a tool that could be used and I think I honestly think that the the biggest thing for it has been like like you said like YouTube and apps and that kind of stuff Purely and simply so people could try it without being around other people. Because I know for me, like that was one of the big things for me when I first started. When did I first fall into it? Maybe probably about five or six years ago. And that was the thing was I don't have to go to a class. I don't have to do this. I don't have to be around other people. I can literally, you know, download an app or find a YouTube video and... Uh, like I started with a lot of like guided stuff so that 
you know, you literally just do what you're told. Yeah. You know, if you're counting breaths or you're doing a body check-in or whatever it is, like you do what you're told. And you can do that in the comfort of your own home. You can even put headphones in if there is someone else at home and they'll never know. They'll think you're taking a nap. It doesn't like <laughs> it, it's it became a very almost like a, a very something very, very private that you could try before you buy kind of thing. And I do find that a lot of the people, because I have now used it in clinical practice and I use it again, like we talked about at the start, probably less often than I would like to but it is kind of sporadic. But when I do use it, like I, I find great benefit in it. And everyone that I've tried it with, whether they continue it, you know, every single day or they just use it when they feel they need it, again, they find, or they've it's told me anyway, that they find great benefit in it. Once you can sort of get over that little, because that little hurdle, that stigma hurdle is still there to a degree. And a lot of people do feel, I don't know, it's hard to explain. I guess it's just they feel a bit like, oh, I don't really know about this when they first try it. And then I think maybe because it seems like on paper, it seems too easy. Yeah. How is this, how is sitting and counting my breaths going to, you know, fix my anxiety or calm me down or anything like that? Where once you do get into it, I think you quite quickly learn even if you can string a couple of weeks worth together it's really hard and it's really complex and it's really uh i get like i said before like the 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 different types that you can do and the the breadth of it as a as a modality is massive so as a slightly older person i can vouch for that change that's happening in in healthcare (laughs) And I am glad that it is, it is changing and I hope it changes faster because or more because I think it is a really valuable uh, tool that anyone can add to their, their wheelhouse. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you touched on that I thought I was there and I was like, yes, Brock, was when you were saying how, you know, now people can do it from home. There's not the pressure of having to go to almost a public setting where... Mm. Maybe you're feeling judged or whatever it might be. And I think as well, sometimes when people do meditation for the first time, sometimes it can be frustrating. You know, people are there saying, I'm being told not to think. Why can't I just stop thinking? It shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) And I look, I can vouch for that. I remember one of the first times I did it, I was lying there and I was like, what should I have for tea? Did I bring my wallet? Can (laughs) I buy stuff for tea? Um, so I think sometimes people do find it frustrating and having that added pressure within a public setting, um, that can almost deter people sometimes where if you are in your own lounge room or at your own house and you get frustrated, you know that you can give it another go and you're not necessarily investing uh, money or a lot of time into it. So if it's not working that time, you know that you can always give it another go and it's mm just decreases that pressure, which I think is also really important. I, I think, like, I, I know that, you know, in-person courses and stuff have their place as well, but I think for a lot of people, the especially if it's something new, they've never done it, they don't know anyone, like the anxieties that just showing up to the, the course or the, the workshop has can almost counter the benefit 
we're going to get from the meditation anyway. And yes, I know that that's a, that, you know, it might be good for someone. They don't get out much, that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's still, even then, a good place, a, a good thing to be able to try it, you know, on your own at home in your own time when you're comfortable and that kind of thing. I think if we could do everything that way, life would be a, a bit easier, a bit smoother. Imagine being able to try anything new and scary in private no judgment on your own at home with a pair of headphones in like that'd be crazy i kind of akin it to uh something like yoga um which is probably yes you potentially could learn off youtube videos and stuff but i that type of physical skill uh i think probably would be better learnt in a class with a proper instructor and that kind of stuff but I think there's similar level of stigma around those two. Yeah. But I think yoga, because it is better in or would be better learnt in the class, has that as a barrier almost compared yeah. to something like meditation, which you can try and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I know a lot of people that sort of tie those two things together as well. They'll see yoga as a, a meditation or a mindfulness exercise. Yeah, like a mindful movement type yeah, thing. Yeah, because you have to, well, I've got a good friend, the, a good friend that essentially pushed me to, I've spoken about her a few times, pushed me to start this podcast in the first place. She's right into that kind of thing. And the way she describes it is like you have to not necessarily block every thought but let them pass quickly so that you can focus on the movement and the transitions between movements and that kind of stuff. So for her, she often... I guess, considers it more of a mindful movement type thing. Yeah, definitely. So what do you see as, I guess, the differences between mindfulness and meditation? Because I know there are differences and there are links, but from your perspective, how do you see those two things sort of working together? Yep. So I think this one, look, I think everyone has a different response to it. A lot of people are like, oh, it's same, same, tomato, tomato, or however you want to word it. Um, I do see them a little bit different. I think typically meditation is more formalised. Mindfulness, I think, is a bit more easier to be implemented into everyday routine, but then you also hear people speak about mindfulness meditation and the merging of them as well. Um, I typically see one as probably a bit more formalised and also thinking more of the origins of them. I think meditation traditionally has been more linked to things like spirituality, not necessarily religion, but more like purpose and meaning, that Mm -hmm. side of spirituality, whereas mindfulness I think has been more adapted as like a psychological tool, Um, so more so around... um, like I guess managing mental health symptomology or bringing people's awareness to the present to prevent those fleeting thoughts. That's sort of the research that I've done into it the best way that they've explained the differences. Um, But I think it is one of those things and I don't want to be a fence sitter because sometimes that's (laughs) annoying. But if, I would say that's sort of how I would go with it. But certainly I think a lot of people have different interpretations of it. So your, so the meditation that you started learning, like what's, what, what sort of stuff was it? What did you first, like what was your intro to meditation like? 
What sort of stuff? Pardon, sorry? So your intro to meditation, what sort of stuff did you, I guess, start with? How did you start practicing meditation? Yeah. So most of mine, if I'm being completely um, open, mine would be me YouTubing like stress reduction mindfulness or stress reduction meditation and seeing what was coming up. Um, That was my introduction into it. So as I said, it was generally linked with my university work and me trying to decrease stress around the time that I would have all my assignments due because tends to be that they all seem to come at the same time. They do. They do. (laughs) Um, So I would typically do that. Mine, I generally say try and keep it simple. So when it is that you're starting, as we've discussed, it can be so frustrating for people. Like this is on the surface, it's something that you're like, it shouldn't be that hard. Like, why is it hard? Why can't I do it? Everyone seems to be doing it. Why can't I? I think that tends to come when people try to overcomplicate things. So my typical way that I would try to ease someone into it would be those more grounding type activities. So focusing on your breathing, focusing on your senses, so tying more into that mindfulness type side Mm -hmm. and then progressing from there. So more guided visualizations or progressive muscle relaxation, potentially that sort of thing. I think, yeah, if you go for complicated to begin with, you scare people off. I think that, and that not even just complicated, but I think one of the big things I, I see a lot of people who haven't necessarily started doing anything, but uh, I guess pre-contemplative is the length of time. I'm like, did start with like, five minutes start with start with something really small because i see people like i'm gonna you know i've never done it before but i'm gonna do like some like monthly challenge i'm gonna meditate for an hour a day i'm like it's not gonna work you're gonna get to day one and realize how long that is and go yeah i'm done yeah so i and that's and i think that's reflected in a lot of the like apps and easy access stuff because a lot of the i guess intro sessions are quite short and then I guess you you the aim is to build up into it and you, know, you can go for however long you want after that. But it, I think one thing that a lot of people underestimate is it's really quite difficult, especially now. And I, I do wonder whether it's more difficult nowadays because there's definite there's been a definite shift in people's attention spans and that sort of stuff. And, you know, we've got technology and notifications and phones buzzing and watches buzzing now and, you know, everything else in the world wants our attention. And I think that's probably one reason why this is more important than ever in history for a, not just OTs but just for people in general to get their head around and have a crack at. But I forgot what I was saying. I've just had a mind blank. Where was I saying? What was I saying? Yeah, so you were talking about, I guess, in terms of now, there tends to be um, quite oh, yes. a lot more distractions. Yes, yep. correct. You are correct. Uh, oh, yeah, I just wonder whether it's uh, harder nowadays to get started in something like this than it would have been, you know, say 50 years ago maybe. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a thought that serves absolutely no purpose other than to make me pontificate about things but that's that's how I roll no but I think it is an important point like certainly we unpack that accessibility is easier you know it is at our fingertips if we want it it's not hard for us to track it down 
but there also tends to be quite a lot of barriers in terms to us actually engaging mm. in it, you know, on a more simplified level of something like mindfulness and engaging in your senses. You know, how often are people taking a walk outside, um, undistracted, you know, listening to what's going on around them, seeing mm. what's going on around them? Normally we've got our head in our phone or headphones in or whatever it might be. So, yes. Maybe I could be walking around listening to an app that has mindfulness on it or a meditation script that's on it, but actually engaging with our senses. We don't tend to do that on the same level as what we probably would have however long ago. Mm. And I wonder, uh, get your opinion on this. So we look at sort of meditation and mindfulness, et cetera, being the separate, I guess, definitions, obviously, but part of me sort of wonders whether you can really successfully implement one without the other. Reason being is the whole, I guess, part of my journey where I sort of came across a lot of this stuff is with the, or seriously, was around my discovery of minimalism and, uh, you know, not being tied down to the things that I own and that sort of stuff. Um, but to, in order to do that, I kind of needed to be a lot more self-aware around my connection with the things that I have and that kind of thing. And I did start around the same time um, meditating. But part of the minimalism thing was also about minimalizing distractions as well. So it was about, you know, and I granted I am the worst person in the world to be distracted by my phone. I, it is with me like 24-7. It... <laughs> Yeah, so it was about like putting in practice some things to help try and reduce that as well. So, you know, things like limiting the, there's the time thing on your phone now where it can limit access to different apps and that kind of stuff. And um, I use my watch now to get important notifications so that I'm not picking up my phone every time and getting distracted by everything else that's on it, that kind of stuff. To me, that's not necessarily meditation, but implementing those I guess mindfulness and minimalism strategies opens up the space for me to better engage with the with the meditation if that kind of makes sense yeah no I'm following I'm on board yeah oh good (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) but then I'm like well and obviously I only know my path of how I sort of came to think like this and do what I do I'm wondering whether or not you you also think that it, those two or those, not necessarily the minimalism thing, but those two things kind of need to be tied together when implementing either or. Or is it possible to, you know, be really good at meditation without, you know, without trying to, I guess, for lack of a better term, minimize distractions around you that are currently in your life already? Yeah, I think, I definitely think that they can go hand in hand and I think that it's almost important that they do. You know, I think if you're one of those people who can sit down for however long it is and engage in a meditation um, activity and then you leave and you're not being mindful in your day any more so than normal, I don't know if you're actually going to ever end up deriving much benefit from that. Mm. That's my opinion. I don't know if other people have different opinions. Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts recently. I can't remember which one it was. Sorry. 
Um, but you were talking about how you were trying not to speak in absolutes. So I'm trying not to be a fence sitter, but I'm also trying to implement that as well. Um, but yes, certainly. I think if you are trying to, you know, become more mindful and more aware of your surroundings and more aware of who you are as a person, but you're trying to restrict that to just five minutes a day or 10 minutes mm. of the day in terms of formality, I don't know if that's actually ever going to work. Um, I think it's certainly a good start, but I think it's also important to try and increase, you know, mindfulness throughout the day as well. Um, and I think some people are better at that, even though they may not word it in that particular way. So um, one of my friends, she describes meditation as anything that increases your awareness and focuses your attention, which I quite like. I think mm. it keeps it simple. I think it gets it to the point and people understand that. So I'm obviously a fan of meditation, in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, if I asked my fiancé to listen to me do my meditation on the app, I am a good 99.9% .9 sure that he would be like, no, Brianna, I am not doing that. Um, yeah, he just would not. But in saying that right now and pretty much all the time, he's that kind of person that will go fishing and will just do that for hours. For hours. Just completely absorbed in what it is that he's doing. His <laughs> mind's not wandering. He's just so fixated on what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have that, you know, when we're tying it into the occupations and the things that people get meaning from, I think that you can definitely tie them together. You know, it might be someone at a gym. It might be, um, and again, you know, a lot of the men that we work with when we're trying to explain these concepts for them, it might be working on cars or working on engines and they find that time's disappeared and they didn't know that they'd been there that long because they were just so fixed and focused on what it was that they were doing. Um, so I think even trying to simplify it in that mm. way by doing something that, you know, occupies your time, so engaging in an occupation that completely consumes you, I think that can be a form of mindfulness as well. Yeah, and I think that like of that feeling I've heard described as, you know, that's the feeling of flow um, where you get into that sort of groove of whatever it is that you're doing and then, you know, time flies it just disappears. You just know, you know, you block out all distractions. Not deliberately, it just happens because you're so engrossed in what you're doing. Um, I find, uh, like, I, I do wonder whether it's kind of chicken or the egg. So I went camping this weekend and yeah. where I was, there was absolutely no phone signal, which, you know, for me is like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But, um... Like, and I love camping, I love being outside, I love being in the outdoors. But I, just for the sake of it, did like a, just a 15 minute like breath count meditation. Um, but because what I, I was kind of as an experiment without the distractions that I would normally have, it was quiet, it was nice and cool, there was a breeze, we were outside. And I literally just did that staring around looking at trees looking at the leaves for like 15 minutes and that time hammered like it was really really quick it was very easy for me to sort of get into that state without you know 
being in the office and having all that noise around and et cetera, et cetera, all the other distractions that we have day to day. But I also think it's slightly easier to get into that state because I've been practicing getting into that state for, you know, however many years. And yes, it's off and on practice. I'm not, you know, I'm not a monk. Happens to the best of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think most people can relate to that on some level. Yeah, but I think it's one of those things where, so I've tried it before. I'll try getting into it before also uh, as like a, cha- a challenge. So me and a mate were like, you know, we're going to do this. I think it was 10 minutes a day, like a guided meditation thing on one of the apps. Um, and then it got to, well, we were going to do that for a month. And it got to the end of the month and I'm like, I'm just going to see how long I can go for like every day. And what I noticed was it started to be less about the meditation and more about continuing the streak, which to me just, and that's why eventually I just stopped because I'm like, I'm not doing this for the right reasons anymore. Like I'm not doing this to benefit me and I'm not, I'm not fully, like I don't, I haven't bought in anymore kind of thing. I think that for me, that is a, a part of the reason why I think I sort of go not hot and cold, but I I stop and start and some die. Sometimes I'll do it. I tend to do it more when I'm stressed and when I feel like I need it, uh, and it still works well for me in that short time. I'd like to be able to find some sort of ongoing stuff, not necessarily the same, you know, guided stuff or anything like that. But I think also implementing. And the minimalism stuff and I guess a lot more mindfulness stuff into my life that's, I guess, more permanently there complements that as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's a question there. It was just a statement. Yeah. I was going to ask, yeah. when you were saying um, that you find sometimes that it's less about doing it for the benefit or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, um, but more so for maintaining your streak. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that. It's okay. Yep. Um, do you find that sometimes you are getting benefit as a byproduct, even if that's not your motivator to engage? If that makes sense. Um, I would say. I don't know. It's hard. It was hard for me to tell. Yeah. Um, I dare say that there would have been definitely some days when, yeah, like I would have got some benefit from doing it anyway, but it was more. Like it got to 10 o'clock at night, I'm getting ready for bed. Oh, crap, I forgot to do it. So I'll just lay here and do this for 10 minutes and then go to sleep purely and simply. Like I was already chilled. I was not stressed. I was whatever. I was ready for bed anyway. And I was, it was actually like I have to stay up now for another 10 minutes to get this done <laughs> just so I don't lose my streak. Yeah. Um, but like if I, if I did, and there was probably more of those days that I forgot. And it was like the days that I forgot, I think it was because I didn't need it and I get I think in a way with those particular ones I was kind of like forcing myself to do it so it became more of a chore which to me I don't know that wasn't what I was in it for I was in it to kind of I guess more listen to my head and give it what it needed yeah so but yeah, yeah I, mean, look, I, I guarantee there would have been think- some days that I would have benefited from it but yeah there was definitely there started to be outnumbered I guess by the days that I was just forgetting and then forcing myself to do it yeah 
Yeah, I was purely just curious, if I'm being honest. <laughs> no, that's all right. Curiosity is a good thing. <laughs> um, so what, uh, what is, I suppose we probably should have asked this at the start, or I should have asked this at the start. You've kind of answered it, but what is to you, what is meditation? What is meditation? Yeah. Oh, that's a big one. I know. Oh, you should have prepared me. I should have probably um, thought about it. <laughs> I think in terms of that definition that I told you, mm. um, I think it is pretty much anything that increases your awareness and focuses your mind. I like to see that in various different forms. Um, I don't think there is one size fits all. Um, I think that's very evident, you know, think of yourself, think of pretty much anyone that you ever know and trying to get them all to sit down and do the exact same type of um, meditation activity and ask them to make it work. And I just don't think that that will fit. I think it is very beneficial for all people, but certainly I think even though it is gaining traction, as we said, I think there is still some reluctance to it. I think there does still tend to be some misconceptions. So some people do still see it as that humming, extremely spiritual, um, mm. almost religious experience, I suppose. Um, so I think that there is still misconceptions about it, but I think it certainly is gaining a bit more um, popularity and understanding. Here's something. Did I answer your question or no. did I do that thing where I talked around it? <laughs> no, I think you answered it. I'm not sure now. I feel, like, I feel like you answered it. I'll have to listen back. But I feel like you gave me an answer. So that's okay. Okay. If not, we'll come back to it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that, and it's not necessarily my opinion, but I've heard people discuss it with who are like, you know, hardcore meditators, if that's a thing. I don't know. It sounds a bit weird when I say it out loud. But... um. With regards to the apps, is I've heard them just like almost like they not not cheapen the experience, but almost a, like a I have no idea how to describe it. like almost, like it's not as authentic. Yeah, is that yeah, point? yeah. That's that's what I've heard. Well, I've not heard, but like that's what I've heard people describe it. Like that's not real meditation, kind of thing. That's just you know, yeah. following along someone else's instructions kind of thing. Yeah. I think if I'm being completely honest, that's something that I have heard too, uh, which is kind of why I sort of filled in your sentence there. Sorry yeah. about that. That's all right. I um, can't think of words. It's good that you can. Yeah. The person that I had heard that from was probably, and I feel really bad trying to guess someone's age in case I'm way off and they ever listen to this, but I want to say maybe like mid-50s and she was someone who had engaged in this in a long time, had been to India, um, really took her meditation quite seriously. And so when I said that I was going to be on an app, um, I guess her reaction wasn't, that's exciting, it's what the hell are you going on an app for? Like how yeah. are you going to provide that experience through an app and not through face-to-face? -face? Yep. Um. I definitely understand that, I think, particularly for people who maybe have done it for a really long time and, you know, the diehard meditation fans, I guess. But I think it is a positive step in terms of accessibility, like we made mention of, mm. 
um, increasing the base of people who are willing to give it a go. I think it helps to decrease a lot of those barriers to participation, which I think is so important. Um, and I think it also takes the pressure away from it. Again, people have this sense mm. of what they think it has to be and it takes away that it's not a scary thing. Um, you can give it a go. It doesn't need to be stressful. It doesn't need to be a lot of pressure and you can't do it wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that's an important yeah, but one. I, pardon? I think that's an important part is you can't really do it wrong. Like even if you don't feel like you got the most out of it, the worst that's going to happen is you just spent five minutes sitting down and chilling out, Yeah, which probably, you know, has its benefits for some people, especially if they're highly stressed and high strung anyway. So the worst you're going to do is waste a few minutes of your time. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think definitely maybe that's where some of the beliefs and attitudes come from because in terms of the experience, it's probably not as traditional as what it has been, but I don't necessarily see that as a negative. Mm. And I think, you know, if you are one of those people who like that really authentic experience of going to a group or being able to sit and meditate for an hour or whatever it is, continue to do you as far Mm. as I'm concerned. Um, But, yeah, sort of allowing more people to have the opportunity to experiment with it for themselves as well. Yeah, I think I think what it does is essentially lower that barrier to entry. Is that you know not everyone can go to India and you know learn off whoever teaches a yogi in the hills or something like that. Um, in my experience, like I've only ever had you know positive benefits come from, and I've always used apps or I have used my own stuff. Sometimes just a background noise. I tend to be able to block things out easier with rain noise for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I live in the tropics. Um, so like even when, like when I was camping, like for the 15 minutes, all I did was like breath, breath counts and rain noise in my ears and that was it. And then yeah. like that works for me. Um, for other people, it'd probably just make them want to pee. Who knows? Uh, but I, I think... Like a lot of the skills that I used to be able to do that were stuff that I've learnt over the years doing like the fully guided things on apps, like the guided sessions on apps. And even then it's like a 10, 15 minutes for me is like a perfect amount of time. Like that's that's where I find that's kind of the sweet spot. I think any more than that and I would find it a lot harder to – I think almost the the benefit to time ratio for me would be sort of starting to skew, um, especially if or like doing it during the day when I'm generally kind of busy, unless I'm trying to not be. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. It does sort of lower that barrier to entry. And also what you were saying before about like if you are someone that's, you know, been to India and likes that authentic thing and you meditate for an hour whether it's for religious reasons or whatever then 10 minutes on a nap probably isn't going to do a lot for you because no. you know you almost like not necessarily that you're past it but you, you, you're doing it in a different way so whereas people I, I, I like the apps as a especially as like an introduction to intermediate sort of uh 
intro to meditation kind of thing. And there's a lot of like the app that I use has like intro courses and, you know, more advanced courses. Like you can pick wherever you're up to and follow the programs and whatnot. So, yeah, well, I'm sure a lot of the other apps are pretty similar, like in that way that they'll have different courses for different things. Yeah. And I think absolutely sometimes it does just come down to preference. Like, yeah, maybe it's not going to compare, but, you know, maybe some people really like going to the footy and some people prefer watching it on TV. Who knows? Um, I guess people derive pleasure and enjoyment from different things and in different forms. So, you know, some people do like the fact potentially that it's like I don't have to drive Mm. to go to a place where I'm going to sit down for 20 minutes I can be in charge of how long I want to do it for and I've got that autonomy over that um yeah I think for me too it's a convenience thing like if the meditation if this is good if the meditations on the apps were an hour to two hours long I wouldn't do them like it is don't care how good it was, I wouldn't do it. I don't have that much time to spare or that much patience to learn to be able to meditate for that long. But the fact that it's yeah. you know, 10, 15 minutes, it's on my phone, I've, I'm one of those people, I've always got headphones with me, there's some in my pocket and I'm wearing some right now. Uh, like, you know, if I'm getting overwhelmed at work or even I've done it like just finished work, just got in the car and I just sit there for 10 minutes, do something before I go home. Um, I've done it for a period of time when I would do it first thing in the morning when I wake up to sort of start the day. Like it's there. I can do it when I want. I don't have to fly to India or go and yeah. find a It's Buddhist. easy to fit in around your lifestyle and yeah. the commitments that you already have rather than being like I have to be here at this time to do this. That doesn't necessarily suit me, but it suits the person who's going to facilitate it. So I have to make it work if I want to do that today. And I think that's a lot of the different things in in my my life personally. Like anything that's sort of structured, and I have to try and fit in around, I am going to struggle with it. Yeah. Like even training for powerlifting stuff. Like I got my own setup in the in the shed. I've got my own gym in the shed. I train when I am able to. So some days it's going to be. Straight after work, some days it could be 9 o'clock at night, who knows, but like if it was, say, a class that I had to show, like, you know, class training's on at 6.30 every day, I wouldn't be able to make half of it because my days tend to not be that structured. Yeah. So I think that's one of the other benefits of the the apps and, you know, YouTube videos and the readily accessible stuff that you can access whenever you want. What else do I want to know? What else do you want to tell me? I think um, for this generation as well, like we are so used to, and I think you were speaking about it a bit earlier, but we're so used to having things easily at our disposal, you know. Things are so instantaneous now. Um, So when things aren't at our fingertips and we can't dictate Mm -hmm. when something's going to happen, sometimes that acts as a big barrier as well because it's like, but I'm used to having things when I want them, that instant gratification type thing. So I think apps, that's also probably another reason why they are quite successful amongst, you know, millennials and the like. And I can see why people would see that's a bad thing, like, oh, the apps are just feeding into that. But my experience being like someone who lives and breathes instant gratification, <laughs> like I said earlier, I've got my phone with me all the time. 
Um, I am more connected than I probably should be. But I think having the app on the, like once the app is playing, like once you're doing a session, you're not looking at the phone. You're not checking those notifications. Pretty sure my phone puts itself into like do not disturb when it's actually running a session. Yeah. So when you're sitting there, if you get your eyes closed and you're following along the instructions, even though it is on your phone and it's on an app, it's I don't think it still feeds that same impulse, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So it's still the same media and it's still the same yeah. technology, but it's very different in the way that we're how you, how you use it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is a good thing for me because any time that I can, you know, put the phone down, for me that's just mindful. Just being able to put the phone away for me is like a yeah. mindful win. So, yeah. yeah. So how do you, obviously you do teaching on the app. What's your meditation like nowadays? As in my practice? Yeah. Um, I think it's probably... So I'm probably um, almost quite similar to you. So when you were saying that you typically do like around that 15-minute mark, I if I'm trying to maintain my, and certainly attention, there has been research that suggests that you can sustain your attention longer with regular meditation practice. But I also think around that 15-minute mark is generally a good amount of time for me to be able to sustain my attention without getting frustrated by having wandering thoughts of wondering mm. how far away I am from the end because I've got the rest of my day that I need to get to. Um, so normally I would do some in the morning and some in the afternoon. That app that I'm currently on also has um, Kundalini Yoga, so which is a particular yoga form. It has mindful movement, so there's a Pilates instructor. Um, there's breath work, um, so... It's not always the meditation specifically that I do. Sometimes I will also look at um, like the breath work or do a mindful movement or whatever it might be. Um, one thing that I have found is I can't, I can't listen to my own voice. <laughs> um, Fair. I just, I cannot do that. Um, I did try once and it was a weird time because you spend the first however long being like, did I say that weird? Oh, that was weird wording. Maybe I shouldn't have worded it like that. <laughs> it was a weird experience. Um, you should start a podcast. You get used to it. <laughs> oh, dear. When I have to listen to myself, I'll be like, oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah, no, I think that's that's typically the way that I try to do it, mix it up throughout the day and also take opportunities throughout my day to try to be a bit mindful as well. Um, so whether that's you know, taking the opportunity to take a few deep breaths if it is that I'm feeling overwhelmed or work pressures or whatever it might be. So trying to find ways to integrate that as well. Nice. My internet connection is unstable. Thanks, Zoom. It'll come back in a sec. There it is. Awesome. And when you so when you're uh like recording for the app, etc., is it like a script that you've written and you've put together or how does that work? Yeah, so I prepare the script myself. The ones that I have range from like really, really short, so like three to four minutes up to I think maybe around the 15, 20-minute mark. Um, and they're quite broad. So most of the downloaders of 
the app that I'm on are female. Um, so it is quite broad because, again, I think with the app it is about trying to get people to experiment with different things and find mm. what it is that actually works for them. So sometimes it will be more guided, um, visualisation type, progress, progressive, sorry, muscle relaxation, uh, more breathing type focus, and then other times it will take more of a specific um, theme. I guess, so things like body positivity because that's something I guess a lot of people can relate to but particularly mm. young females, I suppose, um, manifestation scripts, that sort of stuff as well. So it's quite broad. Um, sleep scripts, that tends to be a really common one that people use it for, that wind down before bed. I've used um, them. And they are amazing, some of them. Yeah. Like, and, but what I found is the ones that I would not expect that just knocked me out. Yep. Very strange. Yep. Oh. I think that um, one of the weirdest things was when my old housemate that I lived with when I was at uni, like, sent me a Snapchat of some of my friends trying to fall asleep to my sleep meditation and it was just, yeah. And then another time before they went out, they decided that they would all do one of my meditations. So I got, like, it yeah, look, it was really <laughs> funny, but it was really weird. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can see how that would be odd. Mm. I think putting yourself out there in any medium can feel strange when people that you are, that you know and you're close to come across. I find the same with podcasts when I get like mates who aren't even OTs, like, oh, I listen to this one. I'm like, okay, why? <laughs> weird. Yeah. Do you find with your – so something that I found with mine is that like you mentioned some of the different kinds of, um, I guess, sessions that you may have recorded um, have a better or worse or a different impact. Like, for example, I'll probably be explaining this really bad, but as an example, um, the like body check-in ones frustrate me. They are like yeah. I get genuinely annoyed and I just hate them. I can't do them. Whereas anything to do with the breath, uh, some oh, some of the chanting type, not chanting, but like the repetitive, um, I guess it is kind of a chant thing, that doesn't necessarily work for me. But, yeah, for me, I've found through experimentation that anything to do with the breath is something that I can generally focus on better. Yep. Do you find the same? Or is there any patterns about maybe like the kinds of people that might find different things more um, effective or? Yeah, I think preference certainly plays a big part. If I'm being honest, I think I also need something that's quite tangible for myself. So things like breath, I can focus on breath mm. because that's something for me that's very tangible. Mm. Um, you know, I can focus on senses because I know what I can hear and I know what I can feel and I know what I can see and touch and whatever it might be. I said feel and touch, you know what I mean. Hmm. Um, I thought you meant emotions and touch, but yeah. that's fine. Sure. <laughs> that too. Yeah. We'll go with that. That's exactly what I meant. Exactly. Well planned. Yeah. Um, but when I get asked to, you know, sit down and imagine a beach, I know yeah. that visualisation type stuff I tend to have quite a bit of difficulty with because I find it so much easier for me to lose focus on that because it's not 
like I'm not actually at a beach. Mm. And trust me, I wish I was, but I'm not at a beach. Um, In terms of is there patterns that I'm aware of of who likes what sort of what that means in terms of preference? To be honest, I don't know. Um, I'm actually now very tempted to do some research into that because that's actually really interesting. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, good point. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. Fair, yeah, I don't. I, but I don't even like I during the session if I'm doing like the prog- even progressive muscle relaxation where you're actually just focusing on body parts at a time, just gets to me. But the weird thing is, like, I can in the moment feel the benefit. Like, I can feel muscles relaxing as I like. I feel the benefit of it. It just annoys me, and I have no idea why. Yeah. Um. Whereas I think for me, I think. Probably a big part of it is for me, I'm not necessarily doing that kind of stuff for physical relief, I guess. A lot of it for me is around, you know, stress management, relaxation. And I think when I do the sessions, yes, there is some sort of immediate effect, especially if I am really stressed and I can feel less tense, a bit more relaxed, etc. But when I'm going through a really stressful period, like I've just come out of one with a whole lot of work that I had piled up, uh, it's kind of an accumulated effect of I'll start doing meditation sort of every day for you know a couple of weeks while I am in that really stressful thing and it'll help me manage overall, not just you know during the session or just after each session kind of thing. Whereas the, the muscle relaxation yeah. stuff for me is very immediate but for some reason annoys me I don't know maybe I'm weird is it um and I don't know but I'm thinking of some of the men that I've worked with because we tend to always ask for feedback after their Mm. session and one of them reflected that progressive muscle relaxation although they thought that it felt good at the time which is sort of what you're talking about for the most part, they found it quite frustrating because they were like it wasn't moving at the speed that I wanted. You know, they'll say tense and release your toes and tense and release your feet and tense and release your calves. And they're like, I knew what was coming next, but we weren't there yet. So I was finding that like their mind was actually moving quite quickly because I knew what was about to come. Does that make sense? That That's a definite possibility. I've never thought thought about it like that but that definitely sounds like something i would say (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it could be but i think it's for me it's also like i don't i don't get the same sort of stress like mental stress release from which you know makes sense when you say it out loud from progressive muscle relaxation um which i guess is probably the main reason why i do it um, and I was only doing it like I was doing, it was like a course of sessions where you do one each day kind of thing. And then it was a different type. It was essentially like an intro course this is ages ago. Uh, and then, yeah, when I got to those ones, I'm like, oh, this is not doing what I wanted, <laughs> but it definitely could be the fact that I guess almost like the anticipation, like I know what muscle comes next. Um, yeah. it, could also be some of the descriptions that some of them use, which is kind of strange, but still seems to work. 
Like the one I've used or the one I remember anyway, we used to talk about things like breathe into and, you know, list another body part. And I'm like, it's not a lung, so you can't breathe into it technically, but. I can't breathe into my toe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But even though you can't, if, yeah, it seems really stupid, but visually, like visualizing doing it while you sort of breathe, yeah. you, I, you do feel the kind of relaxation in whatever body part it is, whether it's a shoulder or a knee or whatever it is. Um, but I think my brain's probably too logical to actually accept that as a, a premise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where do you, where do you see meditation having the most benefit for our clients? For our clients, mm. typically for people who I guess are dealing with, um, I don't know if this is answering your question, but I think this is what you mean by it. In terms of people who are experiencing mental health symptomology or whether they have a diagnosis or not, any sort of difficulty with negative thoughts that are becoming quite consuming of them, I think it can be quite helpful in distancing yourself from them and acknowledging that you can have thoughts and, yes, they can be super uncomfortable and we acknowledge that, but your thought doesn't have to be truth and it doesn't have to have power unless you give power to it. Mm. Um Someone I know quite well explained to me that he has PTSD from his time in the army. So he's become a real avid um, meditation fan, I suppose, because he's found that it's really helped to distance him from those thoughts that are taking him back to his time serving and instead bringing him into the present and those thoughts, even though absolutely they're going to be difficult and absolutely at times they will be consuming it's enough to have distance from them so that they are losing their power. And for people with anxiety or people with depression, I think it can do the same. Yeah, that's awesome. Where do you think it best fits for the clinicians? With a clinician? Yeah. So in the role that I work or with... Oh, just in OT? general, in OTs. Yeah. Where, do you, where do you see the benefit of engaging in this kind of thing for clinicians being? Or what do you yeah. think the benefit is even? Yeah, for ourselves or for clients? No, for us. For us. Yeah. I think it definitely helps reduce stress levels. There's been a lot of research into that. Um, I think as well a lot of the time, and I don't know if you agree with this and you in your line of work, you would definitely know this more than me, but I think sometimes there is a specific type of person that gets into helping professions. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> I think a lot of us can sometimes be overthinkers or deep thinkers as well. Um, <laughs> you're like, yes. Yes, hands yes, up. Yes, I That's feel me. this. Um, I'm a well-known well overthinker. Yeah. I genuinely think as well we all go into this profession wanting to help, wanting to be able to do our best, and because of that we can beat ourselves up about it and continue to ruminate on and certainly reflection is important. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking mm. about when you're ruminating on the way that you worked with someone or interacted on someone and you're continuing to think I could have done better or getting really stressed and bogged down in the work, I think it's very important in that space. Yeah, that's I 1,000% agree with that. I think 
likely one of the sort of movements recently um, has been around sort of self-care of clinicians and new grads and even students. And I think where this stuff might fit in really well is for as part of that self-care of the clinician. Uh, I've recommended it to clinicians. I'm not going to say that I force them to do it, but I've recommended it to clinicians <laughs> in order to, it, it's the old you know, airplane thing, like put your own mask on before you help anyone else. Like if you're stressed and you're not coping and we talk, I talk about this with my students when we look at things like therapeutic use of self, if you're stressed, you've had a shitty day, you know, you're not coping, you're overloaded, you're overworked, you're burnt out and you go into a room with a client, there's transference that happens there. Whereas if you can, and this is how I used to use it in when I was working clinically, is if I've had a day like that and I've got 10 or 15 minutes and I can sit down in a quiet place and do a, you know, a quick meditation, even five minutes will help, anything's going to help then I'm not negating that all of that shitty stuff has happened to me in that day, but I'm not letting it control me. I'm, it's, for me, it's a process of, yep, this stuff has happened. I'm putting some space between me and that, all those emotions and those feelings, and then I can go into that room with my next client and not have my baggage affect our therapeutic relationship and therefore their you know therapeutic result kind of thing so i think from a clinician's point of view and in my experience it fits really well in doing that and that's that's using it quite reactively but i'll also use it you know preventatively if i know you know i'm stressed or whatever and i've had a long day i can do that again it just helps me it's going to be different for other people, but it helps me put space between myself and what's happened, whatever, yeah. whatever that might be. Yeah, absolutely. I think I use it clinically in mental health. I used to use it um, in a very similar way too because a lot of the distress that I was for the people that I was working with was caused by, you know, stuff that had happened to them. So being able to owe them or, you know, I used to do I've done it with people before, just with the app on my phone sitting in their lounge room. Let's both sit down, let's listen to this, do it, see how we go. Um, it, it helps if they're, if they're willing to engage, it helps, you know, put space. And that space is good for decision-making for, you know, making better and sometimes healthier choices with some of the people that we work with. I've worked with a lot of people who, you know, are heavily users of illicit substance and for a lot of them that was their coping mechanism. So being able to put some space between their feelings and themselves opens up a bit like in that space for them to make better decisions about what, yeah. what coping mechanisms they might want to use. Um, and it's those little tiny things where I see them adding up to making huge differences with people. So you know, 10 to 15 minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but it can make a massive difference. Yeah. And I think, as you were saying, it is so important for us to look after ourselves as well because 
so many of us, obviously, it's the type of work that we've chosen. Um, but sometimes our work can be really heavy. And we do go into our work with the best intentions. We want to help, we want to care. But a lot of the time, that personality type, it's it's obviously not a facade, it's how we actually are. So that also goes into our everyday life. So a lot of the time, and I think of um, my OT friends as well, mm. they tend to be the helpers in their groups and they're the helpers within their families and they're the helpers within whatever it might be where everyone comes to you with your problems. Um, again, talking about my fiancé, I remember he always used to laugh because if we were on public transport and he was on the end, no one would ever really sit with us, but if I was on the end, people would sit down and tell me about their problems um, <laughs> or whatever was going on. And I, I don't know. He's like, you just have that face. Like people just sit down and they just have to tell you about their life. So when you're not really getting that opportunity to switch off because maybe you come home and you're that person for your family, mm. you're that person for your friends, you're that person at work, I think it's sometimes easy to fall into the do as I say, not as I do, but I think it is important to sometimes follow our own advice, even though I'll admit none of us are perfect at times, we're bad at it. Um, but I think sometimes maybe we do need to prioritise that a bit more. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good, like, I've noticed that a lot as well. Like you said earlier, like it's it's a certain type of person that not necessarily just OT but is drawn to health professions in general. And yeah. like you said, they're often the people that care, that want to make a difference, that want to help people. And sometimes, quite often with a lot of modern day work pressures, that's at the detriment of our own mental, physical, emotional health. So yeah. in a way, I guess being able to participate in something like meditation is a kind of not necessarily not a selfish thing, but it's a it's a it's a, a very concrete thing that you can engage in. That's like this is my time, and I think when people try it, you'd be surprised at how much benefit you can get from how like from such a short amount of time. I think that's one of the things that really surprised me, and one of the reasons why I sort of after I tried it the first time, went oh, okay, this actually isn't too bad. Like. The benefit far outweighs the, the time investment. Yeah, such a small investment and there's the potential for such a big reward. Hmm. And then like, like then you've got, once you sort of get your head around it and how it works, using it with your clients then as well, you can actually then talk to them and say, listen, I use this or this is what I find from it or this is something I found helpful. Like it's another tool in your toolkit that you can utilise. Because you were saying that you were in, uh, oh, I can't remember what you said. It was a generic, not a generic position, but a. Yeah. So I was saying that um, it's quite interdisciplinary. So in terms of my team, mm. uh, the team that I work with, I'm not the boss. <laughs> um, Claim it. We have social workers, psychologists and provisional psychologists, and I'm the only OT. So in terms of what we're meant to do or our position description, they're all the same and we all do the same thing but in terms of the way that we can interact with that I think it very much depends on profession as well um, and I think OT does fit really well within that model you know essentially we're looking at when we're talking about offending behavior or substance use that's the way that they're sort of classified mm. um, 
realistically, we're talking about people engaging in occupations, whether they're, you know, going to a party and using substances or they're using it to cope or whatever it might be. They're still engaging in an occupation at that time. And I think looking at it through that lens is helpful because we look at it in terms of function and, again, tying it into one of um, your other podcasts that you spoke about. It was one on values. Um, Well, that's going back. Yep. Yeah. So I was listening to that and you should have seen me because if you had seen me in my car listening to that, I was like, yes, Brock, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's good to know. Good to know. Yeah. That is what I was doing in the car because – you were speaking about how our values can inform our actions mm-hmm. and that it's really important to understand that and the function behind the behaviour of what it is that we're doing. Correct. And that essentially you can't just take something away mm-hmm. and expect people to be okay with the absence of that if it's that it has been serving the function essentially. Yep. Yeah. So we talk about offending in that same way and substance use in that same way that it's like, They are offending for a purpose. There is a reason behind everything that we do and there are motivating factors for us to engage in particular things. And a really big emphasis of our work is looking at what it was that they were engaging, what purpose was that and what are alternatives for that behaviour. You know, peer influence is such a big thing and the friends that they associate with is massive and it has a really big impact. But it's like if I just say, no, don't hang out with those mates. They're no good for you. Yep. Like how effective is that actually going to be? Um, and you could imagine they don't typically like to be lectured in that format either. No, I could imagine. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the models that we use, um, and it was, I guess, developed by a psychologist called Tony Ward who's from New Zealand, it's called the Good Lives Model. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't heard I of that know. one. Sounds yeah, it's a very forensic specific um, model, but essentially it's saying that like there's 11 primary goods that we need in life. So those 11 things help make up a good life. Depending on what article you read, some people say 10, some will say 9. Um, but normally we say that there's 11 and it's about these are common things that everyone wants to achieve on some level within their life. It's about how we go to obtain those and it's saying that offending can be explained in that format. So I wrote down the 11 because normally when I rattle them off off the top of my head, I get to about eight and then I repeat them again because I realise that I've missed one. You know how it is when you have to rattle off a long list? I just waffle usually. Just assume that I'll get to the end at some um, point. So essentially the 11 are mm-hmm. life, which is like living and surviving. So it's your physical health, those sort of real physical needs. When we're thinking of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we're also talking about like in terms of like ways that you might achieve that through offending might be if you're homeless and you have no money, you might offend in order to be able to fund that. So be able to fund, you know, accommodation or maybe you'll use substances so that you don't have to sleep so that you're not sleeping on the street. Yep. Yeah. So it's looking at what was that main reason behind them using or offending at that time so that you can actually try to find an alternative. Okay. Because if you just look at their behaviour in isolation, it can sometimes be very difficult to work with. Yep. Um. 
There is knowledge, so that's learning and knowing. Excellence in play, so leisure. Um, Excellence in work. Agency, so that autonomy, independence type stuff. Um, That is one within the correctional centre that they can struggle with quite a lot, Mm. obviously, if independence is something that's really important to you it can it's a there's a slight problem there if you're in prison and that's something you value yeah. i can yeah. imagine that yep yeah so that's one that certainly they can struggle with within that environment yeah i'll bet um in a piece so that's more around like freedom from emotional turmoil so like your mental health this is um, where you put your, this is where you put your meditation in yeah 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 Absolutely. Um, Relatedness, so connectedness with others. Um, Community, which is being part of groups. So Mm -hmm. that's more around social belonging on a broader scale. So relatedness would be the connection that I have with you or a connection that I have with a partner or a friend individually, whereas community is more like broad groups. Yep. Um, Spirituality, so again, not religion that we're talking about. I mean, it can, but more around that meaning and Mm. purpose and bigger picture type stuff. People can find spirituality within religion, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Um, Pleasure, so your state of being, so being happy and content. Um, And creativity. So in terms of meditation, that was a long spiel for me to just be able to tie this back. Um, I like it. I like it. (laughs) But, yeah, meditation absolutely fits under inner peace. So a common one that we find, um, particularly around substance use, and I'm sure it's probably the same in terms of your mental health experience, is inner peace. So many people, when you talk to them about substance use and what are the motivators for them engaging in that, it's so commonly a coping mechanism. Mm. Do you agree with that even within the mental health setting? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Whether it's... um, either from symptoms or from social situations where they just can't. So usually in my experience anyway, a lack of coping mechanism, a lack of positive coping mechanism for whatever it is, whether it's dealing with symptoms or dealing with, you know, family or spouse fighting or whatever it is. Um, It's generally, it's a coping mechanism. It's just not obviously a, a super healthy one. Yeah, yeah, just not necessarily like pro-social or adaptive or um, conducive to their long-term goals or who it is that they want to be in the yeah. long run, I suppose. And I think that's where like the concept of the dark side of occupation fits like bang on. Pardon? Have you, do you know the dark side of occupation, the theory of the dark side of occupation? Oh, hit me with it. You haven't heard that. Oh, here we go. <laughs> just getting on my soapbox. So the theory of the dark side of occupation is a theory uh, developed by my friend Rebecca Twinley from the UK, uh, but it essentially is the, the whole purpose of it is to it's, it's, I'm excited about this because this is like so <laughs> down your, so down your alley, it's not funny. Um, it's about showing or shining a light on occupations that technically are occupations but aren't, like you said before, pro-social, et cetera. So things like drug use, things like graffiti, things like, you know, all of that would be looked at under this dark side of occupation in that 
they're still occupations and they still function as occupations, pretty much exactly what you've described going through this model uh, is exactly how I would describe the dark side of occupation. I'm that excited for this podcast. I'm like, that is my bread and butter. Yep. Yep. I'll have to send you some links. So Bex, Bex is, there's a textbook underway at the moment. I know that much. She's, she's in, she's the editor, but there's a heap of different fancy OT people involved in writing that. Um, and yeah, her, her work, her initial work around it started in, I think it was same sex sexual assault, something to, something like that. Yeah. Um, and then she sort of came up with this concept of the dark side as in, you know, like the dark side of the moon. So we're trying to shine light on this concept. Yeah. It's there, but it's often ignored. So when I've thought about it sort of and almost extended my thoughts around it in some ways in that a lot of our how we traditionally frame occupations, so we look at productivity, we look at leisure, we look at rest, and they're all even just the labels are in a positive frame of reference, like productivity, like that's a good thing. Leisure, that's a good thing. Rest, that's a good thing. Whereas we are almost hardwired to ignore the negatives. Yeah. Where, you know, and that's where like pretty much that values podcast, that's where my head is at or was, it is slash was at at the time because I can't remember how long ago I recorded that. <laughs> I think it was a year. I told you I started from the start. You did? <laughs> I can tell. I'm impressed. Um, but it's exactly like you said. Like if we take something away, we're essentially just creating a vacuum and they're going to fill it with the easiest thing that they currently know how and that'll be the drug use or whatever it is that you took away in the first place. It's the same reason why like this, we, we can see that really obviously in say the research behind quitting smoking. It, there's a, like an 87% fail rate of going cold turkey because you're just taking something away and depending on what smoking was whether it was a a social outlet or a relaxation thing or you know a big mechanism for something you need to replace whatever that need was or whatever like the need's still there you need to replace the occupation with something healthier something that's not going to kill you hopefully um but that's that's the dark side of occupation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about how it needs to be replaced, one of the girls that I work with, she explains it, and this is on a very basic level, but I think it tends to resonate with people. She's like, life is like a pin cushion, okay? Okay. Hear me out. Yep. Now i got this. Yep. All of our occupations or everything that we do are pins within this cushion, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take one out and don't replace it, it leaves a big hole that needs to be filled. Fair enough. I don't, I've never heard it explained that way, but that makes sense. I've, how have I explained it? I've expl- People don't tend to know when you go, when you're like, life is like a pin cushion. Yeah, like, like, that's not how the saying goes. It's no. life is like a box of chocolates. You could take the chocolate out and then there's just a little chocolate shaped hole there. You could keep, <laughs> keep the chocolate metaphor. No, I think I've I've explained it to my students using like pot plants and all sorts of stuff. Like the 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 actual pot might be like whatever the occupational need is, and then whatever you plant in there doesn't matter. Or it doesn't matter, but you know you could plant a weed, or you could plant a flower, or you could plant a whatever, but it's going to fill that pot. So 
you know, when we're working with people, pulling out the weeds doesn't necessarily make your garden look beautiful. It just means you've got a heap of empty pods. Whereas you can plant something, you know, nicer or, you know, plant a fruit tree. Why not? Something more practical. I like that. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, sorry, I interrupted your uh, the model. I actually really like this, the way it breaks it down uh, into these 11 things. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is there any reason why it's predominantly just for, like, use with offenders? Um, I think that was the way that it was developed. Yeah. So it's meant to be um, pretty much outlining that offending is the pursuit of um, legitimate goals via inappropriate means. So it's highlighting that these are sort of the life goals that we have and that there's different ways of achieving it. So it's not trying to justify their behaviours by any means, but instead it's shedding a light that it's like what you're doing and what it is that you're trying to achieve through that is a normal thing that people are trying to achieve and things that people want within their lives. But it's about finding alternatives to that behaviour because I think, you know, realistically the people that we work with are generally we meet with them at rock bottom and a lot of people have very, very strong opinions about the correctional system, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, none of that's lost on the men that I work with. They're all very aware of that and they're all very aware of what the media and the community seem to think. So it's a way of saying, you know, your situation that you're currently in, you're not helpless, you do still have control. There is a reason why you do what you do. That doesn't make you weird. That doesn't make you a bad person. Um, You know, a bad choice doesn't make you a bad person. Um, So I think it is a model that can actually provide some hope and let people know that there are alternatives for their behaviour. Yeah, I'm just having a quick... Like it's got its own website, goodlivesmodel.com. It's got a ton of information in here, but where was that bit that I was going to ask you about because it looked really awesome. Oh, uh, and I think that was a bit you were just getting to just then was about the four primary types of problems being capacity, scope, means and coherence. And I think that without, you know, obviously not reading this ton of information, but just those different things, the issue with how they're attaining those goals would yeah. i guess for the the negative aspect of it would fall under one of those things so whether they have the scope whether they have the means whether they have the coherence or the capacity yeah um would determine what with anyone not just offenders i think any kind of behavior yeah. whether it's a Absolutely. positive or negative reaction and, yeah yeah And I think that's a really good place where, you know, OT specifically can fit in is when we're looking at the means that they have and which is essentially the barriers that they get to maybe achieving these things via adaptive means or pro-social means. Sorry, we tend to speak um, within that setting as like anti-social versus pro-social. There are barriers to people being able to achieve it in that particular way. So I think OTs are very good at... As you know, we tend to be enablers, so we tend to be very good at coming up with ways to overcome barriers for people to be able to achieve what it is that they want to achieve in an alternate way that is more supportive of who they want to be long term. Even just looking at the capacity aspect here and just this little description here looks like it would be the perfect fit for um, like meditation as a modality because it talks about capacity being simply 
poor emo- like including poor emotional regulation uh, and it says simply poor emotional regulation might block the attainment of inner peace or lead the person to resort to less adaptive means such as alcohol abuse so being able to i guess facilitate what would be you know engagement like if you're looking at uh, engaging them in, say, meditation as an occupation, um, whether that's regularly or, or whatever, for the purpose of you know trying to find that inner peace and as a positive adaptive mechanism, it can help reduce the risk or reduce the use of, say, alcohol, drugs as uh, an emotional regulator. Yeah. I like this model a lot. I'm going to have yeah. to look into this. This fits fits very well with a lot of other ideas that I have and that I've seen. Yeah. And I think uh, um, another part of the model, it also talks about scope. I don't know if you've got to that point yet. Yep. Um, but I think that's another thing that's really good at explaining, you know, why is it that sometimes you can have, and I know that typically things aren't in isolation, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you feel like you have one thing going wrong in your life but your whole world's falling apart. And Scope's very much looking at, you know, in terms of those 11 goods, trying to have a broad range of things that do hold importance to you because if it's only relatedness, for example, and it's at that point that you have a breakdown with your partner and that relationship ends and then everything's falling apart, Definitely, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that would be an awful thing to go through, mm. but it's very much that whole putting all your eggs in one basket. It's about having so many things that make up who you are that you give value to, that if one was to fall apart, definitely not ideal, definitely not great, but, you know, you do have other things that you can still derive importance from and value from. So it, so would it be, so the scope aspect of it is kind of like, perspective i guess of your own life in a way because i just see it's talking about um three clusters of goods which are the body self or social life and it like you described like you described like if poor scope is you know when something goes wrong in one of those and then all of a sudden you can't see the good in any of them at that point in time is that am yeah I, am or I like describing this not wrong? having um a broad range that you're prioritizing at any point in time so not having okay so it's not yeah, so it's also not having yeah, yeah. so it's also yeah. yeah not actually having things in those rather than just not being able to see them yeah okay interesting which again perfect for ot yeah yeah so i think it's awesome because as i said technically it's well, technically, well, it was um, a model that was derived by a psychologist. But in terms of the work that we do, it does fit so well with occupational therapy. Um, I, I, this is a model that I get very passionate about in mm. programs. Um, I think it is something that's so easy to understand and it stops it from just being, you know, as I said, the men that I'm working with, it is very easy for them to feel helpless and hopeless and like they don't have anywhere where they can go that, you know, they're wrong and they're bad and they aren't deserving and what's wrong with me. Yeah. Um, whereas this is sort of highlighting, yes, maybe the way that you've obtained this isn't great and certainly we don't justify their behaviour for them but it helps provide perspective on, you know, this is saying that maybe there's nothing wrong with you as a person. It's just the way that we've learned to go about obtaining these things. Yes. So good. 
I think one of the really benefits of models, especially like this also, is it helps the therapist to be out. Because quite often therapists like, I've never been to prison. I don't know exactly what it's like. I wouldn't have made some of the decisions that some of those people would have. But a model like this and the way it breaks it down helps me understand the why. Like why yeah. did they make that decision? Why would you choose to do this and not this? Um, like this is what I would have done, but like I'm coming from a very different place to the people that I work with quite often. So I think any models like this that can be used to even like enhance the the clinician's understanding of what their client is going through, what their client is experiencing, that was that's always been my whole push with OTs looking more into value systems and that kind of stuff is for that exact purpose. So you can actually understand the people that you're working with. Because it's a very rare practitioner that is working in an area that they've actually had firsthand experience in. I prove me wrong. I dare you, anyone. It yeah. would be a time, a fraction of a percent of OTs that work in any field that have actually had experience being on the other side in that field. Yeah. So we need stuff like this to actually help us gain the insights that we need to be able to help people. Yeah. I really, really like it. And there's, there's one line that I just found that I was going to read um, that essentially when I was asking before about whether, like why it was just about offenders, but um, this line is, so that is offenders like the rest of us actively seek to satisfy their life values through whatever means is available to them. And I think that's massively important, not just offenders, because I can 100% relate um, to some of the people that I worked with in mental health, to people that I've seen on my placements many moons ago in other fields, to, you know, people that I've talked to through this podcast, especially the people that I've talked to with regards to their lived experience of different things, that quite often their decisions are made based on what's available to them, whether that's resources or knowledge or, you know, just even emotional capacity. We all know on probably a much smaller scale, the decisions that we make when we're either emotional or are different to the emotion of uh, the decisions that we make normally. I get very hangry. I'll be honest. Exactly. That's why they reckon <laughs> you should never do your grocery shopping when you're hungry because you come home and you've bought all kinds of weird and wonderful <laughs> things that you wouldn't normally have bought. Yeah. Because that's, it, it, that's essentially changed the emotional context in which you're engaging in that occupation. Therefore, that's a different means to be about. Like you're hungry, so therefore a means of, of, of alleviating that is to buy all the snack food and whatever other, other rubbish you end up throwing in the cart as yeah. opposed to being a lot more sort of, I guess, logical and planned out with it with you. You know, everybody's got a healthy meal plan, I'm sure. Um. Yeah, I, I really like this model and I am curious. I wonder if anyone else who is listening has ever used this model with anyone other than offenders because I could see it being a really, really valuable model even as a reflective tool. Yeah. I like this a lot. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I definitely like it. Like, Certainly it's meant to be something that is used with offenders, but I found mm. ever since I've come to know the model, even in terms of 
if I'm trying to weigh up a big life decision, I find that I'm using these things, like which of the goods are the most important for me and which ones would I be achieving through doing this action? I mean, certainly I don't do it for every action I take. Um, but for those bigger life decisions, because I think it it is easy enough to follow and it is easy enough to understand that it's so easy to therefore apply. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm, um, I'll throw the link in the show notes so everyone else can have a look at it because it's, I don't know, even just this one page, which is the client information page, which gives the overview of the model and the gives you the ideological underpinnings of the model and a few of the different other constructs um, and even gives you translations of it into Brazilian and Greek. Greek mm-hmm. If you're really so inclined, I'm not sure if any people that speak yeah. Brazilian or Greek listen to me, but if you do, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'll throw this link up because there's some really cool stuff on here as well. There's a information. This is a really good site. Thank you for showing me this. This is great. This has made my night. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> but, yeah, I think as you said, you know, it gives a good perspective and a good insight into what sort of models are we doing. I think, you know, if you've never been in prison or worked within a prison, which majority of people haven't, it is sometimes difficult to know what it is that we do there, um, which is completely understandable. And it was only... I'm going to say maybe two weeks ago that I was having a chat in one of my programs. So a lot of our programs, typically it's 12 men and two facilitators. Um, And we're actually talking about stereotypes and we were talking about the community's perspective on them. And it was a discussion that they completely came up with was facilitated by them. And they were talking about how Essentially, when they're released, people are unwilling to give them a go, that they sort of continue to be um, branded as a criminal or whatever it might be. And where do those beliefs come from? And it was one of those things where it's like most people's exposure to that environment is through TV and is through the media. So it's, you know, thinking of movies and I admitted it in group. I was like, before I worked here, my exposure was American movies. Like, it's what it is, or the news saying thug, charged, or whatever, you know, and that really emotive language mm. of yeah, yeah. thug or crim or crook or whatever it might be. Um, so I think it is really good to increase the awareness of the work that is done within the forensic setting and the models that we use because they do make so much sense. And as I said, it's not about justifying or telling them that what they've done is okay because, you know, everyone's crime has had a victim and it's certainly hurt someone. But, you know, there are reasons why they've done what they've done and how can we work with that to move forward? I think it would be really hard to make any progress forward without understanding, like, the reasons and the why and... You know, the good thing about this model too and, you know, other similar models that do look at this kind of stuff is that it shows you, like, it's not like all sex offenders do it for the same reason or all people who get charged with breaking and do it for the because they need money for drugs, which is, you know, the typical stereotype that, you, like you said, you get from movies, that kind of stuff. And I, I can 100% relate to the whole movie thing because that's when I, I believe that, 
90% of mental health stigma comes from as well because it's you generally not portrayed super well in the media. Yeah. They look for the extreme cases and they make them 10 times more extreme because that's what sells tickets. But yeah. um, They never have a movie of your everyday person turning up to work, yeah. um, raising children taking, while suffering from anxiety. Yeah. Like they just don't Taking have their that medication movie. and coping well. Yeah. Because that's boring for cinema goers. So, yeah, it's always like, you know, Shutter Island or something like that where it's always mo- and it's always multiple personalities and they call it schizophrenia. That and that's my pet yeah. peeve. Pet peeve. Anyway, that's a whole other side, side soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think like models like this allow you to see that everyone's an individual and people can engage in what from the outside would look like the same occupation for very different reasons and it has very different meaning and it's because of very different value systems and this is one of the reasons why I push for OTs to look at this kind of stuff more and this is uh, this is like this has made me so happy seeing that you are already doing it it's wicked but yeah I think in terms of you know if people aren't aware that there's an alternative And for some of these people, maybe they haven't realised that there's an alternative. Like it's not uncommon for us to work with people who say, you know, I first started using substances just before my 11th birthday with my dad. Like if you're not aware that there's an alternative, how will you ever know? And like it makes complete sense for people who did start using with their dad to maintain that use with their parents. Why would they ever think that it's wrong? And from a very young age, they're being told that, you know, people who don't use substances, oh, they just think that they're so much better than us. Yeah. You know, they're so up themselves. Why would they look at that and be like, okay, well, that's how I would live a pro-social lifestyle. Instead, they look at that and they're like, that's for uptight people or people who think that they're better than others. You know, that's not going to be a life that you would want to engage in from the outside if you've never been taught to look at it mm. that way. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. And I think even, like, that just got me thinking too, like even the the people that I've worked with, uh, some of them had committed offences, but quite a lot of them were substance users. There was even, like, different stigmas depending on what substance you used. Yeah. Like... The, and the reasons, and quite often the reasons were availability. Like I'm, you know, I'm using meth because it's easy to get and, you know, I need something to cope. Whereas if something else, you know, if say marijuana was easier to get, they would be using that instead as a, a coping mechanism for, you know, at night I hear voices or whatever it is, whatever they're using it for. Um the availability, I like that it looks at availability as one of the things. Yeah, this is, I'm going to just, I feel like I'm. this is a boring podcast because I'm just reading stuff, but it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I can't express how good this is. I'm glad you like it. I do. I love it. It's possibly my new favorite thing right now. I feel like a little kid at Christmas. I've just found this new toy. It's so good. Yeah. We are definitely going to have to do another podcast on this. Can do. Maybe we can look at some case studies and stuff and like how it's implemented. That would be rad. Yeah. We are actually in group today. So I was in 
in terms of programs, as I said, we've got like substance use and then we've got what we call like offending behaviour programs. Mm -hmm. That's just what they're called. It's currently all going through a restructure in Victoria at the moment, but in terms of where I work, we're still calling it offending behaviour programs. Yep. Um, So when you come into the prison system, you get classified. So either you're a general offender or a serious violent offender. You're one of two. They love labels in the correctional system, which sometimes goes against everything um, that we're trained as. Yeah, I could imagine. um, Which sometimes can be hard. But, yeah, so serious violent offender essentially is any violent crime. Um, So that can be armed robbery, murder, manslaughter, assault, whatever. Um, So varying levels you come under that. Still general offending is everything else. So that's thefts, burglaries, drug offences, driving offences, whatever. Jaywalking. Um, So in the group that I had today, they were a substance use program um, and it was a methamphetamine-specific program. So we were actually talking about the Good Labs model in that program today, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why it was top of mind when I started talking to you. Um, But, yeah, it is interesting because it's like in terms of, you know, when I was speaking to some of them, we were saying what good were you achieving through your substance use or through your offending? And a lot of them will say stuff obviously like inner peace and um, that sort of thing, but relatedness is so common. So many of them use with peers. For other people, it's around that excellence in work. So they're like, I dropped out of school because I've been using for so long. Mm. Me trying to obtain employment was near impossible. No one would hire me. I started dealing and I was really good at it. So for them, this was their way of achieving that excellence in work or, you know, that knowledge or creativity on how it was that they were going to deal without being caught. Obviously, they weren't successful in the long run because they were in my program. Um, (laughs) But certainly at that time, it was achieving that good of creativity. So again, it's tying into that. There are so many reasons why people do what they do and that one behaviour or that one occupation can be achieving so many different goods for so many different people. I think that's one thing that frustrates me sometimes with OT is I feel like breaking things down into like little categories like we've got like, you know, productivity, leisure, rest just almost simplifies things too much. Yeah. Whereas we're better off looking at the why as opposed to the what. I think that's yeah. a more valuable thing for a, an occupational therapist to be doing is looking at the why. I think the why, though, as you were saying, mm. I think it is so important and it's definitely changed the way that I've looked at occupation as well. I think when I was at uni it was very much what do they want to do, what occupation do they want to engage in, and I think that there is so much value in that. So I'm definitely not dismissing that. Mm. But I think it's also equally as important to know the why because if it's that there are goals that they're setting that are going to be really difficult for them to achieve, particularly within the short term, obviously it's something that we want to continue to work mm. towards because it is important, but is there something else that could achieve that same goal that we could achieve in that short term so that they are getting sort of that short term and then continue to work in the long term as well rather than yeah. um, feeling like they're working towards a goal that just seems so far-fetched and so far away. So is there a goal-setting component built into this model or is it or is it just whatever you use once you've sort of explored their situation? I don't believe that there is like a um, 
goal setting particularly in relation to this, but certainly within our programs, we tend to unpack it quite a bit more as well. So um, within our substance use programs, we would be looking at um, like what is it that you're trying to achieve through that and then looking at tailoring in terms of we generally call it like the four S's, so skills, strengths, supports and strategies. Um, out of those four S's, what can you do to achieve that via a different means? Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. I'll have to think about that. I like it on face value. It sounds pretty good. I do like a good anagram. Pardon? I do like a good anagram. So Yeah. So skills, supports, strengths and strategies. What sort of buy-in from the consumer do you feel you need for like for this model and like that goal setting type thing to to work um do they, have to, do they have to be fairly engaged or is it something that kind of comes along while they're exploring yeah um within different programs that introduced at different times so the substance use program that i'm facilitating at the moment is only eight sessions okay. where the program so it's 24 hours the program i was in directly before that was 105 hours. hours oh i thought you meant like eight sessions in 24 hours i'm like wow that's like no <laughs> <laughs> three hour sessions yep. eight of them gotcha 24 hours that in makes total. much more sense yeah <laughs> yeah we just we decide not to let them sleep so yes. if you just go back to back for 24 hours it, if they've been using meth they're probably used to it <laughs> Um, but yeah, my program directly before that was 42, two and a half hour sessions. So it went for 105 hours. So in terms of being able to unpack the model and continually, like, I guess, have that repetition throughout the program of tying program learnings back to that model, it was a bit easier where in terms of the program that we did today, it was a bit more, this is the model. And we will be looking more at coping mechanisms or why it is that we use later on um, and we will tie it back in. But certainly you don't tend to get the same level of repetition. So I think there's understanding on the basic level when it is that you introduce it as a one-off concept. You know, we have it up on the board and they can all contribute and um, I guess a little bit classroom, but we try and make it a bit more of a discussion. Yeah. Um, I guess it would, certainly it, would, it would be hard. It would be hard not to be a little bit classroom in that environment, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, and again, as I may mentioned to you earlier, I was having a chat with one of my co-facilitators about me feeling like I had imposter syndrome before I met with you today. Yep. Um. And she was saying one of the things within the rooms, though, is that you can very much use your OT. I think we tend to be quite responsive to people and to the barriers to engagement because it's yeah. we're so tuned into people's barriers and trying to up- overcome those. So certainly it can be a bit teacher-student, but the media in which we try to convey that message, um, she was sort of highlighting that we tend to do that a bit more as OTs. So it tends okay. to be constantly mixing things up to keep them interested rather than me standing up the front and talking at them for two and a half hours because, you know, so that's as a, probably going to be a bit difficult. As opposed to other professions? That was what she said. That is not what I said. No, 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 no. It's, it's interesting. 
I wonder why that is. Because I've heard I've heard similar things. I remember doing a course. It was like a I don't even know. It was like a teamwork motivational type course thing years and years ago when I worked on the Gold Coast. Um, and I remember doing an exercise, and I can't even remember what the exercise is. It's not probably not overly important to the story, but um, the facilitator because they she got all the answers and they were like at random, and she was reading whatever my answer was. She didn't know it was me. And like immediate was like, this is an OT. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, that was mine. And then she went on to explain like, you can always pick an OT in that particular exercise because of X, Y, Z. And I'm like, to me, I'm like, that really highlights one, that that chick, whoever she is, is really in tune with what's going on and she's been doing this <laughs> for a long time. But also that it's a particular personality type or a particular way of thinking that the profession has either attracted to it or developed through, you know, the schooling, whatever it is. But I just found that I was just like blown away by I'm like, how can you tell that that's an OT just by reading some random yeah. answer on a piece of paper? The so, piece of paper wasn't asking what is your profession, was it? No, I, I, <laughs> I scribbled that bit out. No, that was fine. No, it was, I can't even remember what it was. It was some like, Self, it was some self-esteem thing. It was something about fish. I don't know. I can't remember. It's too long ago. I think I think I've got memory loss or something. It was a very long time ago for me. Very old. But um, yeah. I and I've seen, I've heard of instances of like that. You know where OTs, I guess, behavior. If we're looking at this model. Um, is quite cons consistent across the profession, which is a good thing, I think, in a way, unless yeah. it's a, a offending behaviour. But um, I think that does us well. And that's one of the I mean, that's a complete side topic, but I think changing the makeup of the profession may have implications uh, on that consistency, whether that's a good or bad, I don't know, but it will have yeah. implications. Another random podcast episode from many moons ago that just flashed up in front of my eyes. So I liked it. I'll follow wherever it goes. Good, good. I like it. <laughs> Did you really start from the very beginning? Pardon? Did you really start listening like recently from the yeah, very start? Yeah, I went to um, back to number one and I think I got to, no, because I decided That's I'd set so myself much. a challenge. I'm like, I will listen to all of them before I get on your podcast. Not realizing like how many hours that was going to be. I told you how many hours that was going to be. Like, I know, I know. But like in my okay. head, I was like, it's so achievable. Like there's this many days, there's this many hours in a day. And like I didn't factor in the fact that like one, I work in a prison, so I can't have my phone at work. Two, like my commute to work is not that long. I just, there was all these things that I didn't factor in, if I'm being honest. But I went in with very high hopes. Well, and so I started at the start and then. After I think maybe episode nine, I just had to start jumping. Where did but you, I'm going back where did to you get start. up to? Um, I'm curious now. You don't my get phone's to, over there. You don't get to hear I from people who actually listen. The last one that I listened to was Act. Oh, yeah, yep. About Act. Yep. Um, I listened so about to. Halfway. I feel really bad that I'm not going to remember everyone's name. No, that's okay. That's my job. Um, one of the ones before that I listened to was Mindfulness. That was uh, that would be Leah. Yep. Um, I listened to the Rocket OT one. Um, it's like episode two. Yeah, 
the values one, smart goals. Um, my rambling. Reflective practice. Also my rambling. Like, yeah, I started like at the start. So I got through quite a few at the start and then, yeah, I realised that and I had to be A little bit more now. selective. <laughs> but now that I'm not on a deadline, now I can go back to there was no the deadline. start of the ones that I haven't listened to. There was no deadline. In my head there was. <laughs> you needed to meditate on that and ease <laughs> the stress around that deadline. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, breathe the OT. Yes. Tell me about that because you, I'm like, there's like a whole heap of like Instagram stuff around OT nowadays. Your stuff comes across quite unique to me. Oh. Yeah. Good well, unique or bad unique because it can really go both ways. No, this is good unique. Good unique. Bad unique, I wouldn't even bother. This is good, Nick. You'd be like, exit Zoom chat. Uh, yeah, um, hang up now. Uh, one, I'm I'm a very visual person, and I like leaves, and you have lots of that on your in your graphics and whatnot, and in your logo. For one, that just reminds yeah. me of home. That looks looks like my mom's garden. Um, yeah. uh, but mainly, what I'm thinking, and probably in your last few posts, you've done it, but mainly the stuff that you post in your stories, you have like theme weeks. I do. So that was something that I started. Um, look, to be honest, the Instagram page is actually still quite new. So I think I only started that maybe August. So it hasn't really been up and running for that long. Um, it was actually prompted by, you know, how you have these plans and you're like, in an ideal world, this is what I would do. But then it takes someone to kick you up the butt to actually get it going. Welcome to my world. Yeah. Um, so I had all these plans of sharing information because I think in terms of the work that I do and the programs that we run, there's a lot of life information, um, for lack of a better descriptor, that we relate to the men. And generally the information that we receive is like, you don't learn this in high school and it's so straightforward and it's really important and it's things that people should know, but no one ever teaches you this stuff. Um, so my plan was to pretty much share the information that I found useful and um, interesting and share that and hope that other people found that it was as well. Um, and then when I ended up signing on to be a meditation teacher on the app, they were like, so can we have your social media handles? And then I realised that my personal Instagram page was predominantly pictures of my dog, so I thought I'd better create a new page. So that was the kick up the butt that I had. I don't know. <laughs> Pictures of your dog might be a good ad. I'm also like on terms of uh, I, I'm, I, I'm nearly certain this is something that I developed through my work, but I pick up patterns Yeah. and your posts are in a pattern and I really like that because I like that people can like have the discipline to be able to stick to something like that because I, even though I pick up patterns, I'm not very good with sticking to patterns so there's like a landscape or a picture of a tree then there's a selfie and then there's <laughs> like some kind of inspirational quote or post or something like that and it's the same so when you scroll it's like a column of nature a column of you and then a column of like words and inspiration and I like that people can do that because that like I don't know that I find that very calming 
and I'm presuming up until the last four posts where you've now posted models, um, I'm presuming that was very deliberate. Yes. Yeah. So it was very deliberate. Deliberate. Um, I have a friend who is very, very into social media. So I'll be honest, she self-appointed herself as like my social media consultant (laughs) informally. And she was like, Brie, this is what you've got to do. Um, So I've had quite strong feedback about the fact that I just stuffed up my... um, I was going to ask, is she mad now? Yeah. I think she's cut me off. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sacked you. So I'm going to have to find a way to fix that for her. Because um, she's quite disappointed at the moment. Need a tree selfie model, tree selfie model for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's, and obviously, uh, uh, and being the nerd that I am, I'm like, oh, there's the photo of you uh, in the, I think, recording for the app. And I'm like, oh, I really like that microphone. Just Which one? The, the photo of you recording for the app. Yeah. And my instant nerd was like, oh, sure, SM7B. Like, I really like that microphone because <laughs> that's who I am as a person apparently. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Oh, good. I'm there Friday. I'll take another picture of it for you and I'll send it to you. Oh, you tease. Oh. <laughs> um, so what's your ultimate – so with your theme week, so the other thing that I really like, I can't remember what the theme is. You'll have to remind me what the theme was. But, like, the information that you share is so broad. There was one week where I think, like, on one day it was, like, an OT model and the next day it was, like, something from Tony Robbins and yeah. the next day it was, like, something. I can't, what was the theme for that week? I can't the remember. The Relationship Skills That's Week. That's the one, yes. What Do you find, are, are you aiming to, because obviously you're Portland. I mean, the latest one is all about OT models. So obviously, that's very OT related. But are you aiming to, I guess, target all this information at OTs or is it who are you? What's the, the your goal? What's your social media manager's idea behind this page? Oh, <laughs> um, my face. Yeah. Thank goodness it's a podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have no poker face. I need to work on that. No, that's okay. Um, Look, if I'm being completely honest, I haven't thought that far ahead, which I think is one of those key things that you meant to decide at the start and stick with it. I think I'm very much just going with, it's one of those things, it's more of a passion project for me. Mm. Like I think it's interesting, it helps enhance my knowledge because I think if you can explain a concept to someone else, it really um, reiterates that you can actually understand it yourself. You know, if you can explain it, you get it. Um, something else that I've said before many, many times, I think you might be my spirit animal because you keep saying things that. I probably heard it in one of your podcasts. (laughs) Either that that, or that. could be that maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So I think it's one of those things. I'm putting it out there. I think it's something that's interesting and I'm very aware that for some people they're going to be like, what the hell is happening? One minute she's talking about relationship skills. Next second she's talking about OT. Next second I don't even know what she's talking about. Um, I, I'm very aware that it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I can sometimes be a bit of a big, loud personality. So I'm just putting it out there and see, seeing what happens pretty much. Um, but in the meantime, I'm having fun. And I think that's, that's the main thing. I do think sometimes people get a little bit caught up in the planning and the, the, the structure as opposed to just enjoying the process. For me, that was a, 
a lesson that again going full circle i learned very i learned through implementing uh like mindfulness and meditation techniques into my life is to actually let go because i'm a usually a super structured super over planner uh and being able to actually just engage without planning everything to the nth degree was a very big learning curve for me um And so I see your four models at the end ruining your perfect pattern as growth. Take that, <laughs> my, take that marketing manager. That's my interpretation. <laughs> I'll be telling her at work tomorrow and she'll be like, don't listen to him. Go back to your old one. <laughs> don't, no. I also have experience in running social media accounts. I used to run, <laughs> I used to run all of OT Australia's social media and et cetera, et cetera, and there's no patterns in there. <laughs> Maybe there should have been, but there's not. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what else? What do you want to plug? What else do you want to plug? Whatever you want. Where can people find you? Obviously, we've mentioned Breathe OT, and I'll add links to that. Yeah. At the moment, and I hate it when people do this, I have a lot of plans in the works, um, but nothing at the moment that's necessarily eventuated or anything that I have anything at the moment so to this, really plug. This won't go out until this will be a little while. So this won't go out probably until the start of Feb. So is there anything you think might you might want to squeeze in there before then or is it stuff that's long-term still working on? I, I don't know because I'm planning on doing them with other people so it depends on when gotcha. they're available as well. Well... When you've done whatever it is, will they be able to see it on your Instagram or anything like that? Like, will they? Yeah, it'll go up there. All right. Well, we'll just say go there and you'll stay in touch with. Are you able to hint at any of your little projects or is it all top secret? Top secret at the moment. I hate those people. I'm that person who's like, I need to know. Just tell me you can't do that. And I did that and I'm very sorry. Me too. And now I'm frustrated. I can tell you. I just can't tell everyone. I'll cover the microphone. (laughs) <laughs> cover it over. Just, just whisper it. No one will hear it. <laughs> All right. Well, go and eat. Excellent. And enjoy. And I will talk to you very soon. Yes. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. See you later. <laughs> See ya. Bye.